Please be aware, the stories, theories, reenactments, and language in this podcast are of an adult nature and can be considered disturbing, frightening, and yes, in some cases, even offensive. Listener discretion is therefore advised. Welcome, heathens! Welcome to the world of the weird and unexplained. I am your host, Nicole Delacroix, and together we will be investigating stories about the things that go bump in the night. Monsters lurking under your bed or deep in the forest. That unknown creature lurking just out of sight. Frighteningly imagined creatures, ghosts, supernatural beings, and even some unsolved mysteries. So... Sit back, grab your favorite drink, and prepare to be transported to today's Dark Enigma. And on today's Dark Enigma, well, I don't know about the rest of you guys, but I am sick and tired of being stuck at home and worst off about it being bloody cold. So, today's episode is going to be a little bit of a mental vacation for us all. And with that said, we will still be playing our drinking game. And as you know, the drinking game is only for those of us that are at home and have nowhere else to go tonight. The choice of libation, as always, is yours, my darlings. So choose your poison accordingly. And might I suggest, in honor of tonight's subject, rum would be a good choice. Whew! If that doesn't get your curiosity going, I don't know what will. Alright, now for the game part. Drum roll, please. How about every time I say Caribbean? That's going to be a single shot. And every time I say Cryptid, that's going to be a double shot. Alright, now that the business end is out of the way, we can jump headfirst into today's Dark Enigma. And alright, Mimetes, don your pirate hat and prepare yourself for tales about mysterious cryptids of the Caribbean. Ah, the Caribbean. Couldn't we all be there? Long a premier location for cruise ships and romantic getaways, the area is well known for its clear blue waters, fantastic scuba diving, year-round sunshine, lush resorts, and stunning white sand beaches. Yet, there's more to this paradise of tropical islands and sunshine that many just don't know about. Go beyond the bustling tourist areas of the many idyllic islands of the region, and you will find that in addition to postcard-perfect beaches and colorful reefs, the islands of the Caribbean are also home to mysterious creatures that hide from man. The Caribbean Sea is located southeast of the Gulf of Mexico and the mainland of the United States, and it holds hundreds of islands, islets, reefs, and caves. The region has a vast biodiversity, not only within its myriad coral reefs, but also inland as well, largely due to the incredibly wide range of ecosystems to be found here. Dispersed among the islands, one can find everything from rainforests to arid scrubland habitats, all within relatively close distance to each other. 
the waters of the Caribbean also boast exceptional diversity of marine ecosystems and are home to 8% of the world's coral reefs by surface area. The biodiversity here is so astounding that the Caribbean islands have been classified as a biodiversity hotspot by Conservation International. And it's here among these sun-soaked islands with their clear azure waters, so imbued with natural beauty and diversity of life, that we will take our tour of Caribbean mysteries. Let us go out beyond the luxury resorts and throngs of tourists to take a peek at some of the mysterious denizens of these islands. We start our vacation in beautiful Cuba, the largest island in the Caribbean and also the second most populous after Hispaniola. Cuba might conjure up images of sipping mojitos on the beach, vintage 1950s cars cruising down some old-fashioned cobblestone streets, but it's also said to be inhabited by its own share of mysterious beasts. The seas off of Kojimar, most famous for being the town where Ernest Hemingway wrote The Old Man in the Sea, have long been said to harbor enormous sharks known to terrorize fishermen of the area. In June of 1945, it was also the setting for a harrowing struggle with a gigantic shark that turned out to be one of the largest great white sharks ever recorded. And if you're not already singing the Jaws theme song in your head, mm-mm, I don't even want to know you. Mm-mm. It was June in 1945, and a group of Cuban fishermen headed out from Cojamar early in the morning in their boat to fish for marlin, dorado, and tuna. Their boat was a humble affair, a wooden skiff measuring only 14 feet long. The fishermen went out about three miles from shore and set out baited long lines as, there was, as that was their usual practice. As the morning wore on under the hot tropical sun, the fishermen had no luck at all. Not a single fish took their bait, and they came to the realization that other boats in the area also appeared to have not caught anything either. It was perhaps not so unusual, yet the fishermen thought it slightly odd that absolutely no fish should be in an area that had consistently produced plentiful catches before. At around 9 a.m., a startled crewman aboard the skiff pointed out across the water for a probable reason why no tuna or marlin in the area had made it themselves apparent. Cutting through the sun-flecked water, not far from the skiff, was a huge dorsal fin, the likes of which none of the fishermen present had ever seen before. These were all experienced fishermen who had seen a lot of sharks, but this dorsal fin caught their attention due to its sheer size. They decided that such a large shark might be worth some money and subsequently went about trying to catch it. Lacking the necessary tackle to pull in such a large shark, the resourceful fishermen cobbled together an improvised set made up of several other lines braided together and topped off with a heavy wire leader and a shark hook. The hook was then baited with fish and thrown overboard. At first, the shark showed absolutely no interest, but then the behemoth began to approach the bait. It was then 
and only then, that the horrified fishermen realized that the shark was far larger than their boat. And if you're not saying, I think we're going to need a bigger boat, and hearing Roy Scheider's voice in your head, yeah, you know it. I don't even want to know you. Anyways, the shark took the line and was so powerful that the fishermen had to use special wooden floats known as palangres in order to slow the beast down and wear it out. After an hour of this huge shark pulling the boat and floats around, it began to slow down and the fishermen moved in to harpoon it. However, at this point, the shark did something highly unusual and actually turned around to attack the boat. And that's where Rose Schneider's voice in my head is going, I think we need a bigger boat. Anyways, that's just me. <laughs> it aggressively rushed the wooden skiff and began gnawing at the keel, which reportedly sent splinters of wood flying everywhere as the terrified crew looked on. After heavily damaging the keel, the enraged shark circled and made another rush at the boat, whereupon the fishermen were able to successfully harpoon it, Thank goodness, because I was thinking Jaws. Even after being harpooned, this monstrous shark continued its vicious attack, biting at the rudder and thrashing at the boat for some time before it finally succumbed to its wounds and was brought to shore. It was then and only then that the size of this shark truly became apparent. It was measured at well over 21 feet in length, somewhere about 23 or 24 by some accounts, and it was said to weigh around 7,100 pounds. That's a big-ass shark. Since great white sharks are known to reach around 17 feet on average and attain maximum lengths of around 20 feet, this Cuban shark would be one of the largest, if not the largest, ever recorded. It was so large that locals called it El Monstro de Cojamar, or the Beast of Cojamar. Yeah, you, I knew you knew that, but I was telling you anyways. The specimen would certainly outclass the current record for the largest reliably measured specimen, which was a female caught in the Gulf of St. Lawrence off Prince Edward Island in 1988 and was 6.1 meters or 21 feet long. The problem with the monster of Kojimar is that, while many experts deem it as a reliable account, the accuracy of the measurements have been called into question by some, and so it remains officially unverified. Now, this specimen may be enormous, but fishermen in the area have brought in unverified reports of an even larger sharks prowling the waters of Cuba. Sharks up to 30 feet or more have been allegedly sighted on occasion, the claims of which are somewhat made more credible in light of the capture of the monster of Kojimar. Perhaps when visiting Cuba, it may be a good idea to just stay on the beach or get a bigger boat. The seas aren't the only place in Cuba that hold mystery. The skies are also allegedly prowled by large, unexplained winged beasts. One Californian woman by the name of Patty Carson reported seeing something both inexplicable and frightening in the skies above Guantanamo Bay when she was just a little girl living there at the naval base. And you know what? If you didn't say, welcome to Jurassic Park in your head, well, then guess what? I still don't want to know you. Anyways, in 1965, Carson was walking home one day 
with her little brother when they noticed something large rummaging around through tall grass by the side of the road. She recounted how a featherless, winged creature that was as tall as a man and possessed a plenitude of small, needle-like teeth, as well as a long tail with a tip shaped like a diamond, suddenly popped its head and shoulders up over the top of the grass. She described it as a flying dinosaur and said that it was very close, only about 30 feet away from them. The creature was apparently just as startled as the two children were, and after freezing for just a few moments, the thing soared up into the air and away with a swoosh of its massive wings as the two astonished children looked on. The woman immediately told her parents, who, perhaps unsurprisingly, didn't believe her and admonished her for telling tall tales. Nevertheless, the memory of the event and of the creature's appearance has remained fresh and clear in the woman's mind to this very day, and Carson continues to insist that her story is true. In 1966, only a year after this incident, Patty's brother, Tom Carson, would have another separate sighting of the same beast. This time, the boy, who was 10 at the time, saw the creature when he was by himself. And although he only glimpsed it for a few seconds, Tom remembers that it had a tail that resembled the shaved tail of a dog. At this point, one could be forgiven for questioning the reliability and veracity of these particular reports, but they become more intriguing when, a, when compared to another eyewitness account that occurred in the very same area just a few years later in 1971. A U.S. Marine by the name of Eskin Kuhn, who was stationed at the base in 1971, reported seeing what he described as two pterodactyls one day while taking a break outside of the barracks. Kuhn described the creatures as having 10-foot wingspans with leathery wings that had a structure similar to that of bats. The creatures were also described as having short hind legs attached to the rearward part of the wings, as well as long tails with what he called tufts of hair at the end and prominent vertebrae jutting out between the shoulder blades. The two creatures were flying in close formation at an altitude of around 100 feet, and Kuhn said that he sketched a picture of the creature not long after the sighting. And the Marine's physical description of the creatures closely matched that of Carson seven years prior, a person with whom Kuhn had never had any contact. And that these two sightings match each other so closely and occurred in the same area within the same time frame by two unconnected witnesses certainly is interesting. So are these fabricated tall tales or did these people really see something? Hmm something to think about. Anyways, moving on. Many of you may at least be familiar with the ivory-billed woodpecker of North America. It was one of the largest species of woodpecker in the world and native to virgin forests of the southeastern United States. It was a striking-looking bird with a shiny blue-black body, white markings on the body and wings that stand out in stark contrast to the overall dark coloring, and a bright red crest on males of the species. The ivory-billed woodpecker's habitat was devastated by logging in the late 19th century, and the last known specimens were killed in Florida in 1920. 
although thought to have been extinct from this time, the birds are occasionally sighted to this day and have become sort of a holy grail for bird watchers or ornithologists. What people may not be aware of is that there was also a subspecies of the ivory-billed woodpecker native to the old-growth forests of Cuba. The Cuban ivory-billed woodpecker was once common throughout the island, but the clearing of much of the bird's lowland deciduous forest habitat pushed them into ever more limited areas until they were practically extinct by the 1940s. The Cuban ivory-billed woodpecker was considered to be critically endangered by the 1950s. The birds were hardly ever seen and numerous expeditions to locate them at the time were often unsuccessful. But in 1956, researcher George Lamb found only six viable territories within the heavily deforested Chuchillas de Moa range, which was one of the only places left to still have a surviving population. There were conservation efforts to save the birds in the 1950s, but these efforts were hindered by the Cuban Revolution in 1959. The last confirmed specimen of the Cuban ivory-billed woodpecker was a female that was found in a hilly pine forest of an area known as Ojito de Agua by a group of ornithologists in 1987, who were following up on a recent sighting in the area. It was a hopeful find, but sadly would prove to be the last official sighting of one. In 1988, calls from ivory-billed woodpeckers were heard on eight separate occasions in the area by ornithologists, but no birds were sighted during the expedition. The government immediately took measures to protect the habitat, but subsequent surveys of the area turned up no further signs of the bird. The Cuban ivory-billed woodpecker is thought to have become extinct in 1990 at the very latest. Much like its North American counterpart, the Cuban ivory-billed woodpecker has since become a highly sought-after, almost mythical animal. Sightings continue to trickle in to this very day, and the bird's distinctive calls are reported on occasions from remote pine forests on the island. A very reliable report of calls came in 1988 from high in the Sierra Maestra of southeastern Cuba. Follow-up expeditions to the area not only found no woodpeckers, but also deemed the area to be a poor habitat for the birds, a dire assessment further supported by the lack of any historic sightings in the region. To this day, the area originally set aside for the woodpeckers is still there. It's a remote and little explored area that is now part of Alejandro de Humboldt National Park and is still protected land. It is from this rugged wilderness that the bulk of modern-day sightings of the woodpeckers originate. There have continued to be sporadic attempts to officially locate surviving ivory-billed woodpeckers in the area, but so far nothing has been found except what was thought to be perhaps the roost hole for one. It is fortunate that such a promising habitat has remained protected, but until more solid physical or photographic evidence for its continued existence comes to light, it seems that the Cuban ivory-billed woodpecker will continue to remain officially extinct. Nevertheless, sightings continue, and with the unmistakable plumage exhibited by the ivory-billed woodpecker, bird watchers who have claimed to have spotted the birds have little doubt of what they've seen. Maybe these majestic birds are still out there in the wilds of Cuba, 
far from the city lights of Havana and the prying eyes of humankind. We can only hope. Our next stop on our cryptid journey is to the beautiful islands of the Bahamas. The Bahamas is a sovereign island nation located east of the Florida Keys and is comprised of around 700 islands, islets, and cays that are all part of a greater chain of islands shared with the Turks and Caicos Islands. All of the islands in the Bahamas are low and flat, with the highest elevation belonging to Mount Alvernia on Cat Island, which stands at a height of 63 meters or 207 feet. The Bahamas also have some curious cryptozoological oddities. More importantly, though, they make the best rum in the world, and it's where the Bahama Mama was born. See? I'm not just a pretty face. Among these myriad islands can be found the island of Andros, which is well known for its striking underwater vertical sinkholes and meandering undersea cave systems that form the mysterious and beautiful blue holes, as well as the mysterious man-eating octopus-like creature known as the Luska. The Luska is variously described as either a giant octopus, a sort of half-shark, half-octopod abomination, or a squid-eel combination, and is said to lurk within the extensive underwater cave systems of the Blue Holes. The Luska is said to attack swimmers and even boats, sucking them down beneath the waves to be eaten within the dark caves. Missing swimmers, underwater cave divers, and even flotsam of wrecked boats floating in the water have all been blamed on the Luska. Purported victims of Luska attacks who survived their encounters have told of being grabbed by tentacles, and some have even reported welts reminiscent of sucker marks on their bodies after being attacked. You know I couldn't resist the tentacles. You know how I love my tentacles. One of the hallmarks of a Luska attack, according to witnesses, is that the water will often bubble or roil beneath the victim just before they are sucked under. This unique detail has caused speculation that rather than a giant octopod monster, the victims could be succumbing to spontaneous whirlpools that are created when rapid tidal changes draw water through the blue holes. Such whirlpools would certainly resemble the phenomena of boiling water just before an attack, and they would surely be capable of pulling people under. However, such whirlpools certainly would not account for the actual sightings of the monstrous Luska itself, nor would it account for the mysterious sucker marks on victims. And the Luska remains a curious mystery. But the island of Andros holds mysteries on land as well as in the sea. Stories have long circulated among the islanders here of a large mystery bird known locally as the Chikakarni, which is only sighted within the ancient pine forest of Andros Island. The Chikakarni is said to have an appearance very much like an owl and is typically described as being around three feet tall, covered with fine feathers that resemble fur. And the creature is said to have three fingers, three toes, and large piercing red eyes that situate on a head that allegedly has the ability to turn around nearly 360 degrees. And that just freaked me out. 
There is also often mention of a prehensile tail that helps the burial birds to climb in the trees where they make their homes. Because chickacarney nests are reportedly composed of the tops of two pine trees tied together. Chickacarnies feature heavily in the folklore of Andros, where they are said to be elfin humanoid creatures that merely resemble birds rather than actual birds. The creatures are known to be very mischievous and on occasion quite aggressive. It's said that if a traveler happens to come across a chickacarney, it would be wise to treat it kindly. Those who treat the chickacarney well and show respect are said to be rewarded with good luck while those who don't, or even worse, those who laugh at the creature, will meet with bad luck and hard times. If the chickacarney is especially offended, it is said that the creature will violently and forcibly twist the person's neck all the way around. Hmm, that does not sound like fun. Andros Islanders once were so wary of chickacarnies that they often carried brightly colored flowers or pieces of cloth in order to charm the creatures and dissuade them from attacking or causing trouble. One legendary story of the wrath of Chickacarnies involves a former Prime Minister of England, Neville Chamberlain. According to the tale, Chamberlain took over his father's plantation in the Bahamas and upon arriving did a large amount of rampant land clearing. Unfortunately for him, some of the decimated vegetation had been home to some Chickacarnies, which immediately sought out revenge. The plantation was a failure and financial disaster in the end, and locals have long attributed this misfortune to the vindictive Chickacarney's wrecking havoc. Despite the various folkloric connections, sightings of the Chickacarney persist right up into the modern day. Interestingly, the creature may have a basis in fact. Andros was once the home of a large, flightless species of owl that closely matches descriptions of the Chickacarney, both in terms of appearance and of size. Titopollens was a large, 1 meter tall, 3.3 feet, burrowing owl related to the barn owl that once inhabited Andros Island and coexisted with early colonial settlers until it supposedly went extinct in the 16th century due to hunting and rampant destruction of its habitat by new settlers of the island. Although Titopollens was flightless and not known to be arboreal, its similarity in appearance and historical presence on the island means that a surviving population could certainly account for modern-day reports. Interesting. The Bahamian island known as Isabella is also home to a rather curious historical oddity. It seems that during his journey to the New World, Christopher Columbus himself killed a mysterious serpent here. Columbus's diary entry for October 21st, 1492, described how the explorer killed and later skinned a five-foot-long creature described as a serpent that he had seen in a lake on the island. The next day, a similar serpent was reportedly killed in another lake on the island by Martin Alonso Pinzon, who was captain of one of the ships under Columbus's command. Sadly, both specimens were never properly preserved, so it's impossible to know just what kind of animals were killed. Further complicating matters is the rather loose definition of the word serpent in the vernacular of the area. In Columbus's day, the term serpent could be applied not only to large snakes, but to practically anything large and reptilian. 
Crocodiles, lizards, and even mythical dragons were all equally known to be referred to as serpent. And this muddies the water a bit when searching for an answer to the mysterious diary entry because Columbus could have killed an actual serpent, by our understanding of the word, which is to say a giant snake, or it could have been a large type of lizard, a crocodile, an alligator, or who knows what else. Considering that the entry offers frustratingly few details, it's just impossible to say. An expedition led by Florida State Museum's assistant curator Bill Keegan in 1987 uncovered the remains of an alligator in the ruins of a village on Isleta, believed to have been visited by Columbus. It was suggested that the serpent described by Columbus may have actually been an alligator, which were previously unknown to have ever inhabited the Bahamas, and so making it a rather interesting find in its own right. If alligators existed at one time in the Bahamas, it could mean that there were merely imported from elsewhere, but could also represent an unknown population of the animal's historical range, or even a new species. However, the presence of alligator bones in a village that Columbus just happened to visit is far from concrete evidence to link the alligator remains to the diary entry, and so what exactly was killed on that day so very long ago remains a mystery. Columbus, however, would later go on to log yet another mysterious sighting in the Caribbean when in September of 1494, while sailing along the east coast of the Dominican Republic, he and his crew apparently sighted what was described as a gigantic turtle the size of a whale, with a long tail and fins on its sides. This enormous creature apparently was keeping its head out of the water. Now, the Dominican Republic lies on the island of Hispaniola, and giant turtles are not the only mysterious creatures that would call this place home. That's right, guys, our tour is moving over to Hispaniola, an island shared by two nations, Haiti on the western portion of the island and the Dominican Republic on the eastern side. It's a diverse land of thick, lush jungles, pine forests, dry forests, grasslands. Beautiful. Hispaniola is a mostly pristine and ecologically diverse land that is home to several types of alleged mystery animals. One of the most interesting and plausibly unknown animals cited here is one that is known to have at one time actually existed, the Caribbean monk seal. Thought to be extinct since 1952, the monk seal once inhabited parts of the West Indies, including Hispaniola. It was a large, robust seal that could grow up to 2.4 meters or 8 feet in length and weigh up to 600 pounds. With their broad, extended muzzles, the monk seals had an unmistakable and unique face. The Caribbean monk seal was eventually hunted to extinction for their blubber, their docile and unaggressive nature speeding along their doom. Although officially put on the endangered species list in 1967, Unfortunately, it was too little too late, as the last confirmed sighting of a Caribbean monk seal was in 1952 between Jamaica and Nicaragua. After decades of no more official sightings, as well as several expeditions mounted to search for surviving specimens that failed to turn up any trace of the animals, the Caribbean monk seal was officially declared extinct in 2008. 
Regardless of this, fishermen and divers in Haiti and Jamaica have consistently and regularly reported seeing the monk seals to this very day. Several zoological surveys carried out over the years since the official extinction date took to look for evidence of the seal's possible continued existence have still come up short. Moving inland, the forests of eastern Haiti, as well as parts of Jamaica, are said to harbor what is known as the Caribbean Crowing Snake. Okay, I'm just going to say it. You guys know that I hate snakes, and I love you guys, and that's only the only reason there's so many snakes in today's episode. I hate snakes. Anyways, the snake is reported around four feet long with a thick okra colored body covered in dark spots. And some reports make mention of a tail tipped in a feathered tuft. The crowing snake is said to have a red crest and waddles just like a rooster. It is most well known for its distinctive vocalizations as it's said to crow just like a rooster. The snake is said to aggressively eat chickens and islanders will often blame missing chickens on the crowing snake. Although considered by many to be mere local folklore, many islanders in Haiti will insist that the creature is real, and there have even been historical cases of crowing snakes being killed. The partially decomposed body of a possible crowing snake was allegedly examined by a doctor in Jamaica in 1829. The dead snake had waddles like a rooster, a feature not known on typical snakes. In another case, one of the creatures was apparently shot and killed in 1850, again in Jamaica. The snake is sighted from time to time even to this very day, although most often it's heard rather than seen. Now the seas of Hispaniola are the source of some historical accounts of mermaids. You knew I was coming to them. Christopher Columbus himself allegedly sighted mermaids on two separate occasions here. In 1493, while sailing near the shores of the Dominican Republic, Columbus sighted three mermaids cavorting in the water. He claimed that they, and I quote, rose out of the sea and that he had a good look at them. In fact, Columbus described the creatures in his ship's log thusly, and I quote, in a, in a bite at the coast of Hispaniola, I saw three sirens which rose well out of the sea, but they are not so beautiful as they are said to be, for their faces had some masculine traits. The admiral says that he had seen some at other times on the coast of Guinea. End quote. It is thought that Columbus perhaps sighted manatees, which in his tired state he misidentified as mermaids. This theory is further supported by the fact that his diary and log entries tended to be sloppy, and it is thought that perhaps his vision had been failing him slightly by this time. However, a seasoned explorer such as Columbus, perhaps, would not be so quick to misidentify a very unmermaid-like animal like a manatee as an actual mermaid, and then even upon reflection let her go on to assert that this is what he had seen. In addition, manatees were most likely a rather common sight at the time, so why would Columbus and this occasion suddenly insist that manatees were mermaids? I don't know. It seems more likely that if the intrepid explorer had seen manatees, then he would have likely reported them as precisely that, manatees, or not even bothered to report it at all. Regardless, since, again, the entry is not very detailed, it's just not clear what Columbus saw in the waters of the Caribbean all those years ago. 
In addition to sightings of purported mermaids made by Columbus, the English explorer John Smith also claimed to have seen a mermaid in these waters in 1614. In the case of Smith's mermaid, the creature was apparently easier on the eyes, as he wrote, and I quote, Her long green hair imparted to her an original character by no means unattractive, begun to experience the first effects of love. End quote. The Caribbean in general has a rich history of mermaids. The English pirate Blackbeard and his crew reported seeing mermaids on numerous occasions in Caribbean waters and considered them to be omens of bad luck and misfortune. Blackbeard was so wary of merfolk and mermaids that he was known to order his crew to steer clear of charted areas where they were known to exist. Mermaids also feature heavily in many folkloric traditions of the Caribbean, and Haiti itself has mythical merfolk that live in rivers and are called river maidens. Anyways, moving on. The remote mountains of Borahuco, Dominican Republic, have long been said to be the haunt of a race of mysterious hominids known locally as Los Biembians. The creatures are said to be short, ape-like creatures about the size of a small child and with ugly or deformed bodies. The creatures are said to live in trees and to be extremely agile climbers. They are reported as being nocturnal, hiding during the day and coming out only to hunt at dusk, mostly alone, but sometimes in groups. Los Biembins are not known to wear clothing and are said to communicate with series of guttural grunts. Hmm, that sounds like a description of somebody I dated. They are said to be highly aggressive and unfriendly, not hesitating to attack those who trespass into their territory. They have been allegedly known to attack, kill, and eat humans, with human entrails being their favorite part. Like, how, how do you know that? Like, if, if they're that dangerous, how does somebody come back and go, by the way, they really, really love entrails? I don't know. Sounds fishy to me. Perhaps the strangest feature of the Los Biembins is their tracks, which purportedly face backwards in order to hide their movements and keep from being discovered. Folkloric accounts of the creatures say that in the 1700s, an African slave and some Indians ran away from their masters and retreated into the mountains, where they lived far from civilization. And after many years of this, they then became feral and slowly transformed into beast-like creatures. I don't know about you, but that sounds kind of fishy to me. Yeah. Despite the mythical aspects of this legend, Los Biembins are said to be very real by locals, and there are occasional sightings of the creatures reported from the area. And now, unfortunately, our mental vacation has run ashore. Because with that, we've come to the end of our episode. And I thank you for joining me here today. I hope you'll take some time to reach out to me and share your thoughts on what you think. You can always reach the show and me at darkenigmapodcast at gmail.com. And just for the question, if you came across a mermaid or a merman, would you prefer the fish have to be on the top or the bottom? Something I want to know. Let me know what you think. And... If you have a suggestion for any future shows, you just want to tell me what you think, drop me a line because I do reply to every single email. 
And on that note, that's all the time that I have. I thank you for joining me here on Renegade Talk Radio. And don't forget to tune in next time. In fact, pick one person that you love very much and tell them to listen. Anyways, my darlings, see you, my heathens. I love you. We don't sugarcoat shit. This is Renegade Talk Radio. Renegade Talk Radio.